This is the Journal of American History podcast for September 2016. Tyson Reader is a historian and volume co-editor for the Joseph Smith Papers in Salt Lake City, Utah. In both early American religious history and Atlantic history, his research analyzes the relationship between individuals or private entities and the state. His current book manuscript, Commerce and Liberation, Early America, Brazil, and Trade in the Age of Revolution, examines the negotiation between diffuse merchant networks and centralized state power in the Portuguese Atlantic during the Age of Revolution. We talk with him today about his article that will appear in the September 2016 issue of the Journal of American History, Sovereign Lords and Dependent Administrators, Artigan Privateers, Atlantic Border Waters, and State Building in the Early 19th Century. Tyson, thanks so much for taking the time to join us and talk about your piece. Yeah, thank you, Ed. Thanks for having me. Let me start with a large claim that you make on page two and then beautifully fill in uh, throughout your piece. Foreign privateering of U.S. national posed a direct affront to the government resisting its neutrality laws and damaging its reputation among world powers. I suspect that for many listeners, as it was for me, this fascinating story that you tell is not uh, widely known to historians that aren't specialists in this field. So tell us about these uh, Artigan privateers and the kinds of challenges that that they posed uh, and the issues that that they uh, engendered in um, in this period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So these uh, the, these pri- privateers. Now I, I borrow uh, David Head's term, uh, foreign privateering, um, which is essentially privateers who are sailing on behalf of a foreign government. They're not going out in behalf of their own national government. Uh, they are, they have accepted a commission or a letter of mark from a foreign government. And in the United States, this poses a particular problem because this is violating the United States policy of neutrality when it comes to South America. So just to give some background here, uh, the term, the term Artigan or Artigan privateers uh, comes from Jose Artigas. And Jose Artigas is, is a caudillo, a kind of a military political leader in South America in Montevideo, which is, of course, in modern-day Uruguay. At the time, it was known as the Banda Oriental, uh, which would mean like the East Bank. Uh, and so uh, Artigas, to give some background on, on Artigas, he is a, a federalist. When, when Buenos Aires decide when they begin to fight for independence essentially what would become uh, Argent- Argentina's independence movement Artigas is on board but he has a very different view of what Argentine independence should look like than porteños people who live in Buenos Aires Buenos Aires had consolidated power in 1811 under a triumvirate who was now starting to st- try to centralize power in Buenos Aires. And Artigas, who resides in the Banda Oriental, 
begins to take exception to that. And he begins to uh, try to move Argentina towards a more federalist system and a more Republican system of government. Um, in fact, Jeremy Edelman terms, uh, terms it radical Republicanism, this, sort of this vision that Artigas has for Argentina. And so bit by bit, he begins to feel alienated from the Buenos Aires movement. And so Artigas then finds himself fight, fighting for autonomy for in the Banda Oriental against not only Spain, but also Buenos Aires as well. And then to add to his problems, in 1816, uh, Officials in Brazil, now the Portuguese government at the time, actually re resides in Rio de Janeiro. Uh, they had to flee Lisbon, and mo they moved the entire court to Rio de Janeiro. And so the Portuguese court actually resides in Brazil, and they're looking at these issues on their southern border uh, next door in the Banda Oriental, and they recognize an opening to say, you know, we, with all of this confusion, this might be a good time to uh, invade the Banda Oriental and annex the Banda Oriental as part of Brazil. So now Artigas is fighting against Buenos Aires, against Spain, and against Portugal or Brazil. Uh, so he has a real problem on his hands. So he, he does what many South American revolutionaries are doing at this time. He turns to North American privateers, and he begins to, to send commissions to these North American privateers. And so, especially in Baltimore, uh, there, there's some uh, sort of socioeconomic things that are occurring in Baltimore at the time um, that make Baltimore a real hub of South American privateering. And so, a lot of these these privateers are in 1817, beginning in 1817, they accept these commissions from Artigas, and they go and they start they start preying on. Portuguese and Spanish shipping. Tyson, can I? Uh, I want you to keep going. This is wonderful. But could you explain a little more about uh, what a commission is? Artigas gives them commissions. What does that does that mean, really? These are, I mean, essentially they used, at the time they used a commission, a privateering commission or a letter of mark interchangeably. Um, most often they would actually use commission. And essentially this is a document that a privateer could, could carry with them and say, we are sailing on behalf of this government. Um, and so we are authorized by this government to attack private commerce. Good. Okay. So back to Baltimore. And so, uh, yeah, a lot of these uh, these privateers are coming out of Baltimore. They come out of other places as well, but but Baltimore, like I said, is the main hub. And they begin sailing for Artigas. Now, of course, the United States had employed privateers during the War of 1812, but this is something completely different. Those were privateers sailing. Those were American nationals privateering on behalf of the United States. Now you have American nationals privateering on behalf of, of Jose Artigas. And so this creates a real headache for the, the American, for the U.S. government uh, in that this violates their neutrality laws. And this is going to create real problems with their relations with Portugal and as well as Europe at large, who look at the United States and say, this is a republic. This is what you get when you have a republic, a government who cannot control the movement of its own people. 
And so this is this is where we get to the the point that these privateers are a, a direct front to the affront to the authority of the American government. And you uh, mentioned in the piece that roughly 3,000 North Americans participated in these privateering ventures? Yeah, so that's, that's uh, South America total, um, not specifically people who have uh, letters of mark from Artigas, but uh, other, other revolutionary uh, governments are, are sending North Americans these uh, letters of mark as well. This would um, include uh, Venezuela. Uh, Buenos Aires itself is actually uh, early on begins employing um, privateers to sail against Spain. So overall, yes, 3,000. Um, 15 vessels. We know of at least 15 vessels that sailed on behalf of Artigas. And was was the motivation mostly uh, monetary or, or did the rhetoric of revolution uh, play well in in some quarters in the US yeah uh, speaking of of South American privateering in general uh, uh, David Head's work treats this very very well at showing the complexity of this that that there uh, certainly you can't discount a sort of a, you know a monetary uh, opportunism when it comes to these privateers uh, but also uh, there is a lot of evidence to suggest uh, that they really engage enthusiastically and, and in some ways, I dare say, altruistically with Latin, with South, South American revolutionary movements. Um, they see it as an extension of their own. Um, they begin to adopt Spanish names for themselves. They begin to really um, ingratiate themselves within a, a Latin American identity in a lot of instances. Well, so you mentioned the term identity, and I thought one of the really fascinating Parts of this piece is the way you suggest how syncretic identities become uh, in, and hopefully you can explain this term uh, too, in these border waters uh, areas where uh, identities are, are not stable. Uh, racial identities aren't stable. Um, national identities aren't stable. Can you, can you talk ab- about that issue of identity and also, since it's so closely related, your use of the term border waters? Yeah, yeah. Let me uh, so let me give a little background on on how I came to begin to conceptualize these events in this way, in the terms of border waters and these syncretic identities. Um, there was a, uh, a a fellow named Gabriel Lacayo y Coronado, and he sails out of uh, the captaincy of Guatemala. He's he's traveling with a passport from the captain general of Guatemala. And he is uh, traveling to Spain, and he's captured by privateers in the Caribbean. Uh, Some of these early instances, we don't have a lot of information. He doesn't give details about the um, type of privateer or the, the vessel name or anything, but he's captured by privateers in the Caribbean pretty early on. He sails with those privateers for a time as a captive. They go to Cape to the Cape Verde Islands, which are off the west coast of Africa. They do some plundering in that area. And then they decide to when when they they, they decide to transfer him to a French uh, commercial vessel. They're they're essentially releasing him uh, as their captive. And so he boards a French vessel. That French vessel is then traveling from Europe back to South America. It's traveling to Montevideo. 
So he has to, so he goes back across the Atlantic. And at, once he's near Montevideo, when they get to the mouth of Montevideo, he's captured uh, by the privateer captain John Dannels. And then he has to sail with John Dannels for, for a period as John Dannels captive. And uh, he's finally transferred uh, aboard a Portuguese ship and is brought to Rio de Janeiro. And that's kind of the end of, of what we know about uh, his journey. Um, but all told, what, what really struck me is that all told from the date he left until the, the date he got back was somewhere in the vicinity of, of about a year and a half. So he spent almost a year and a half at sea, much of it as a captive aboard privateers. And so I began to to think, you know, he was not just traveling. The the Atlantic Ocean to him was a residence. It was not a highway from one port to another. It was an actual residence where he spent a good residence where he spent a good time of his good portion of his uh, of his life for a year and a half. And I, I began to think, well, what does that do? to one's identity. And particularly, John Daniels approaches Lacayo y Coronado and says, essentially, uh, I'll uh, greatly paraphrase here, but he says, essentially, look, I'm trying to masquerade as a, uh, as a privateer for a Spanish-American government, for Jose Artigas. Uh, I have a problem, though, and that my entire crew is made up of American, of U.S. nationals, and we don't speak Spanish. Uh, so I would like to lend some legitimacy to my enterprise here and bring you on. We'll call you my secretary. Um, and you can even have a share of the prize, uh, of the prize money and the plunder that we capture. Lacayo y Coronado rejects his overtures, rejects Daniel's overtures, but it's at that point where I begin to realize that these captains really have a vested interest in diversifying their crew and creating a syncretic identity. And, and the fact that Lacayo y Coronado was traveling with a passport from Guatemala was absolutely meaningless to John Daniels. And so it, it really challenges national identity and these privateers begin to form a syncretic identity where their local relationships are are more important meaning their relationships essentially aboard their vessels are more important than a national identity and so that brings me to the term border waters because so this happened very frequently look Iowa Coronado is not Uh, an atypical example. These exchanges happened so frequently, um, and by the time we're getting into 1820 about, uh, some of these privateer vessels are becoming so diverse that you have to think of them in terms of uh, of an Atlantic identity or a syncretic identity that they, they have no firm national identity, which is very typical of a borderland and yet this is happening in in the Atlantic Ocean on the high seas. And so I, I come to this term border water, that the Atlantic Ocean is not a highway for vessels, not only a highway for vessels, but it's actually a border water that, that connects many, um, that is in the midst of, of many national governments and empires. Oh, thank you. It's a fast, that's a really fascinating part of, of this piece. So talk with us a little bit about the headaches that, these privateers are creating 
for the U.S. government uh, and the responses um, may be beginning with the Neutrality Act of, of 1817, if, if not before, and how the government proceeds to deal with the diplomatic dance with Portugal and, and other nations. How are, how are they trying to deal with this threat to, to sovereignty? Right. So, so essentially, the, you mentioned the, the uh, Neutrality Act of 1817, and, and there's a, a specific impetus for that. When, when these privateers begin sailing on behalf of South American governments, the, both the Spanish and the Portuguese foreign ministers in Washington, D.C., uh, begin to uh, approach the U.S. government and really lobby for strong, a stronger neutrality act that will impede these privateers from leaving. Um, however, uh, it was uh, John Quincy Adams who, who suggested that it was more uh, the Portuguese minister, the lobbying of the Portuguese minister, José Correa da Ceja, who really was the, the muscle behind bringing about the Neutrality Act. Uh, José Correa da Ceja is an interesting fellow. Um, he, he's raised in, the, in an Enlightenment culture. He's tutored by Italian, um, by, by philosoph Italian philosophers of the Enlightenment. And so he is actually at first very enamored with the United States and, and particularly whom he saw as kind of the Enlightenment's paragon, uh, Thomas Jefferson. Um, and so he's very enthusiastic when he's named as a minister to Washington, D.C. And he begins to, to realize, however, at least in his mind, that, that perhaps Republican government isn't all that it seems to be when he has to begin to wrangle on behalf of Portugal with a democratic government who in his mind moves uh, incredibly laboriously and, and very slow and, and is very inefficient. Did you write this a wonderful, uh, uh, from his letter, uh, this last sentence I thought was great, uh, talking about the U.S. government, they are dependent administrators rather than sovereign lords. Exactly, and that that's what he begins to to realize that he's working from a that, that as a minister of Portugal, he's working from a position where if if the king decrees something, that becomes the law of the land, and you don't have to do all of this democratic uh, finagling and wrangling and and back and forth, and it really begins to take its its toll on him and and also on his perception of the United States, so. He um, he essentially approaches the government, says you need a much stronger neutrality law, um, or else you're you know we you're you're going to have problems not only with Portugal but with other European governments who will not take you seriously if you can't control your citizenry. Um, and the Port and the neutrality law of 1817 is an attempt to impede privateers from leaving ports. Now. Uh, other neutrality laws passed in the 1790s had punished citizens who violated U.S. neutrality, but they didn't have any measures that would stop citizens from leaving um, to, uh, to violate U.S. neutrality, from leaving U.S. ports in a manner that would violate U.S. neutrality. They passed the, uh, the Neutrality Act of 1817, uh, which gives uh, customs officials in the United States an, 
an incredible amount of control over who they can detain over what ships they can detain before they leave U.S. ports. This becomes a real problem in Congress, and, and this is where I, I borrow John Torpy's term uh, of a state's um, monopoly over the legitimate means of movement. He, of course, draws on Max Weber about the state's monopoly on the legitimate means of violence, and he talks about the legitimate means of movement. And the United States makes that kind of a centerpiece in its attempt to control U.S. privateers, that, that if you control their movement out in and out of borders, then you can have control over your citizenry in the Atlantic. And you write um, that, uh, uh, these are your words now, 1819 proved a year of paramount importance in the executive branch's attempts to grasp control over U.S. nationals' privateering activities in all parts of South America. And you, you tell us about, about that year? Yeah, so uh, 1817 w- was important, um, the Neutrality Act, but, but in, in all reality, it didn't do a lot. Privateers were able to find loopholes and ways around uh, to, to leave ports, and so actually privateering only increased exponentially in the year 1818. Now, we we come to December of 1818, and the Portuguese, well, actually the members of, of the United States Congress approach Correa da Serra, the, the Portuguese minister in Washington, and they want to uh, firm, affirm a treaty, a commercial treaty, between the United States and Portugal. And Correa da Serra finds an opening in, in which he can essentially say, you know, we would love to have a treaty. We think it would be very advantageous, but we can't even begin to talk about it until you have brought these privateers under control. Uh, until that point, we can't even take you seriously as a government, in essence, is, is what he's telling them. And so the the executive branch and Congress uh, start to get very serious in 1819 um, as as a re- part, in large part as a result of uh, of what Correa de Ceja is telling them, and they begin to they they actually send uh, Oliver Perry down to Venezuela to converse with revolutionary governments in Venezuela, saying we are not going to stand for privateering anymore, um, and you know you you need to clean up your act as far as as far as recruiting North American privateers to sail on your behalf. Um, but also they begin to pass new piracy laws, and uh, one major thing that this piracy law does is it declares piracy declares it piracy to transfer slaves to to a to attack a vessel a slave vessel and transfer those slaves from one ship from a foreign ship to a an american ship or a, a us ship so that is now piracy and this is something that these privateers had done a lot of in fact the, the most frequent prisoners were uh, of African descent. The most frequent prisoners aboard privateer ships were of African descent. And so this is something that the privateers had done very frequently. It's now an act of piracy. And the United States uh, declares also that piracy is, is now a capital punishment. And if you try importing any of these slaves into U.S. borders, then they are going to, uh, you essentially stand at, you're putting your life at risk. 
um, should you be captured and accused of, of piracy on the high seas. Another act that Congress is going to, to pass is they are going to stop allowing foreign armed vessels to enter ports, certain ports within the United States, and the ports that they specifically target, Baltimore is going to be one of them, because they're trying to target ports that are particularly invested in this privateering business. And so this is going to impede privateers from entering, from re-entering U.S. ports. If they are a foreign armed vessel, they can no longer uh, enter U.S. ports under the guise of being a, a vessel based out of South America, um, because they're just not going to be allowed into port anymore. Also, the, the Piracy Act, uh, which is passed on uh, March 3rd of 1819, uh, granted the president power to use the Navy, the U.S. Navy, to suppress piracy. And then, as I mentioned, it unequivocally made uh, the crime of piracy punishable by death. And so these are a number of measures that in 1819 the U.S. government begins to take to try to seriously quell these privateers so that it can be a treaty-worthy nation. I borrow that term from Elijah Good, uh, who discusses that at this time the United States is trying to prove itself a treaty-worthy nation. Um, and in this case, of course, we're talking about a commercial treaty between the United States and Portugal. And yet, ironically, as, as you write so well, uh, when the demise of Artigan privateering uh, comes, the power relationships between Portugal and the United States have changed and the U.S. isn't so interested anymore. So perhaps we can conclude with your talking a, a little bit about this demise of the privateering and the, these changing relationships. Right. So uh, 1820 presents a, an interesting uh, an interesting case for the United States uh, in that in Portugal, this, is, this really begins kind of the final demise, if you will, of Portugal on the Atlantic scene. Um, there are uh, new uh, revolutionary movements occurring within Portugal, and the power of the monarch is becoming seriously limited. Um, and uh, along with that, it's becoming more and more clear that Brazil is becoming closer and closer to independence. And Brazil, of course, had been the major prize of Portugal. Most people by this time are of the opinion that without Brazil, Portugal is, is more or less meaningless, at least as, as an economic trading partner. And so that begins in 1820. And at the same time, the United States is making some serious uh, advances in, in granting the power of the state control over its citizenry. They're, they're subduing, for example, the, the Seminoles in um, the southeast. They are uh, making advantageous tra treaty. Um, they're signing advantageous treaties with the British government as far as the Canadian and Texan borders go. Um, and they're also really starting to um, impede uh, Slave, Ill illegal importations of slaves into the United States. 
Uh, so all of this begins to occur for the United States really after 1818, between 1818 and 1820. So by the time we get to 1820, the United States uh, really doesn't have as much of an interest in trading with Portugal, especially since Brazil is not probably not going to be a part of the picture if they were to uh, affirm a treaty with Portugal. Um, and so it becomes ironic uh, that, that one of the main impetuses for them to try to bring privateering under control is now uh, they, they've essentially done it for a lost cause, that they really have no, no interest in trading with Portugal, um, and they are becoming very interested in an independent Brazil. It's a wonderful story. Thank you, Tyson, so much. We've been talking today with Tyson Reeder, who is a historian and volume co-editor for the Joseph Smith Papers in Salt Lake City, Utah. In both early American religious history and Atlantic history, his research analyzes the relationships between individuals or private entities and the state. His current book manuscript, Commerce and Liberation, Early America, Brazil, and trade in the age of revolution examines the negotiation between diffuse merchant networks and centralized state power in the Portuguese Atlantic during the age of revolution. His article, Sovereign Lords and Dependent Administrators, Artigan Privateers, Atlantic Border Waters, and State Building in the Early 19th Century, will appear in the September 2016 issue of the Journal of American History. Tyson, many thanks for your piece, and many thanks for taking the time to do this podcast. Thank you, Ed. Thank you for listening to the Journal of American History podcast. Please join us in December for our next episode. If you have any comments or questions, please send an email to jahcast at oah.org. Thank you.